Hello and welcome to Independent Clause, your anthropomorphic writing and literature podcast, episode 6, Dystopia. Hi everyone. So, it's been a rough couple of weeks for a lot of people, myself included, but I'm back from a very good Midwest Fur Fest and I'm ready to leap back into this. First of all, don't worry, you haven't missed episode 5B, I haven't recorded it yet. I got some lovely feedback and suggestions for additional things to cover and I did not want to rush a podcast into production, and give them short shrift. I really didn't want to go into the first week of December at Midwest Furfest weekend without at least a few words, but I failed in that goal. Hopefully these words will be something that will inspire or at least guide you into channeling whatever emotions you might be feeling into your writing. Just a little bit of a content warning, I'm going to be discussing authoritarian repressive governments and oppression in this podcast, in real life and in fiction. Now, I don't plan on going into graphic detail, but if you feel as if you can't handle that sort of discussion, then feel free to stop listening at some point in the future. I will pick back up with that horror episode, or I will pick up with some other topic. Most of us are familiar with dystopian fiction. One of the more famous masters of the form is George Orwell, with his seminal work, 1984, along with Animal Farm and plenty of other work by him. Avid readers and writers will to this day get a shiver up their spine when you mention Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. These stories, and countless others like them, provide us with a framework to question the present and to challenge the direction society moves in the future. Sometimes they're more warning, like 1984, and sometimes they're a call for resistance, like The Hunger Games. Most of us also tend to think of one big type of dystopian fiction, governmental dystopia. Oceania in 1984 is a tyrannical revisionist surveillance state. The capital in the Hunger Games controls the provinces through division and a huge chunk of control over the very basics of life. Repressive governments have existed on Earth in countless forms for thousands of years. Government like it or not, touches most people in some way. It is a presence, formless and looming. Sometimes it's benevolent and protective, other times frightening and punitive. Because of that familiarity and the immensity of it, government tends to be the cause of a lot of dystopian fiction. Government is not the only thing that can cause dystopia, though. Dystopia thrives on dehumanization. That's something that can be done nearly any place there is a massive power imbalance. School, the workplace, prison. All of these and more are rife with opportunities for that. Boarding schools where sociopathic parents would send their misbehaving children, or a corporation that is literally the only employer in town that pays more than minimum wage at part-time hours, but not enough that a person could ever have savings or look at moving to another city without becoming homeless. There have been some fine anthropomorphic examples of dystopia, or at least stories with enough shades of it that are worth taking note. Watership Down has this in spades. The apathy of the original Warren, or the tyranny of General Woundwort, or Orwell's Animal Farm that I mentioned previously, in which the animals take over the farm and run it in a dystopian government. And of course, there's the big one in the last few years is Zootopia, 
It mirrors our modern society, but there are dystopic elements worth taking note of in terms of who holds the power and how it is wielded. Many people live those realities every day, in our own culture, so dystopia is not as far away as it might seem. The original plot to Zootopia actually reads much more like a traditional dystopian society, with downtrodden underclass, the predators, forced to wear taming collars that electroshock them at the slightest hint of anger or aggression. In that version, Nick Wilde chose to fight back by providing an escape for predators, and the powers that be moved to crush him because of the danger that allowing them any freedom poses. Something I've noticed in fiction that is more apparent in dystopic worlds is the apparent cartoonishness of, let us call it the Empire, since Star Wars is a cultural touchstone, but understand that when I say Empire or government here, I mean in general an oppressive regime that rules by dictatorial means, whether an actual dictatorship or an oligarchy or some other means of organized powerful control. So very often we see media designed for children carry a message with it. That message can be one of tolerance and inclusivity and diversity, or one of environmental impact, something of that nature. That requires our heroes to either be paragons of the virtue we wish to impart, or to learn about it and carry an entire character arc within 23 minutes of a standard half-hour cartoon show. What it also demands is that our villains be completely and obviously the antithesis to our thesis. Think back to a show like Captain Planet and the Planeteers, which is as preachy a show as it gets. Who were the villains? They were people like Dr. Duke Nukem, a mutant who wanted to destroy the ozone layer and irradiate the Earth for his own comfort, like a nuclear Mr. Freeze. Or Luton Plunder, who is a slimy businessman with a penchant for hunting species to extinction. Oh, and Sly Sludge, a greasy, sewer-worker-looking fellow who wants to destroy water quality by dumping toxic waste. They're not given any motivation besides the desire to do this harm, and sometimes vaguely the promise of incredible wealth, somehow. When you're a small child, that kind of thing makes the message easy to understand, because you haven't learned all the complexities involved with such issues yet. But as we grow up, I don't think some of us ever lose our nostalgia for that kind of easy-to-understand message, and it begins to infect our thinking as a whole. Our media doesn't disabuse us of that simplistic outlook very often. We've been taught all our lives, for example, that racists are buffoonish characters in white sheets with a really bad southern drawl. If you aren't that, then you aren't a racist and don't benefit from racism. That's why it's absolutely critical, in my view, to make certain that when you write a villainous character who supports, say, a dystopian government, they have a concrete, achievable goal in mind, even if it's a long-term one. They need to be human no matter what their species is. Unless, of course, your character's thought processes are so alien that they make no sense to us. At the risk of invoking Godwin's Law upon my podcast... There was a movie made several years ago that was a television movie that depicted a young Adolf Hitler during the phase of his life where he was a struggling art student in Vienna, Austria. I have long since forgotten most of the plot, and even the title, but one thing that stuck with me, it made Hitler a human being, 
and for that it was absolutely destroyed by public opinion. But here's the thing. I believe that you must make even the greatest monster some way a human being, unless they are completely supernatural. Hitler was a mass murderer. He was one of, if not the worst human beings to ever live. But any story you write with an adversary like him where he is evil for the sake of it will come off as flat as cardboard. You will not satisfy your readers, and you won't drive home the message you hope to send. It's been said that a good villain never believes themselves to be the villain, or that if they do, they believe their actions wholly justified. This is at the core of what I'm talking about. If Richard III or Macbeth were nothing but cardboard villains, we would not still be quoting their lines 400 years later. Macbeth is conflicted about what he must do to achieve the power promised him by the prophecy, and over time grows resolute in his actions. Now that he is king, he must do what he can to govern the country with a stable and firm hand, and therefore certain regrettable actions are necessary. Richard is a deformed, despised man, perceived as good at only one thing, war. At the start of his play, the war between York and Lancaster is over. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. It means that Richard is going to lose the adoration and respect that he has gained through warfare that he has denied at all other times. While he has the chance, he takes it and manipulates the situation to take his revenge on those who hated him and climb to the seat of absolute power, believing this will give him the respect he deserves. As a kid, I used to watch Masters of the Universe, G.I. Joe, um, Action Force in some countries, and Transformers, and each of those shows ended with a now infamous public service announcement where barbecue would catch kids about to try and spray water on a grease fire, or Roadblock would scare off some drug pushers from a group of kids who were about to cave to peer pressure. They were campy, and they were hokey, and even us kids knew that back then, but they still had a good message. As good as the message was, though, I'll never forget wishing that just once Cobra Commander or Destro would come out and give the anti-drug PSA. I am a terrorist and an arms dealer, and even I know that doing drugs is stupid. I wanted them to be relatable, because it never made sense why they were doing what they were doing to me. Now, it was fun, but if you invented a weather control machine that worked, you would instantly become the richest and most powerful person on the planet. I was a weird child. When you're writing your dystopian society, pay special attention to the day-to-day -day struggles. Even if your character is a hero by some definition, they're going to have smaller struggles than the fate of the world. Under an oppressive, fascist government, how does a teacher toe the line while still succeeding to educate their pupils? Or what if it's not an oppressive government? but oppressive megacorporations. Cyberpunk is full of those types of scenarios. The lone hero is unlikely to persevere if their aim is to take down the oppressor. If they managed to take down one of the corporations, it would be cannibalized and devoured by the others, and that power would not devolve to the downtrodden. How does a person who has to eke out a modest living in order to survive manage to also strike against the corporations where they can, or do they even try? 
in the face of a monolithic task, would they focus merely on the actions necessary to stay alive and derive some manner of enjoyment from life? Anthropomorphic animals give us some unique options to play with in terms of dystopian worlds and oppressed classes. There's the now-famous case of Predators and Prey from Disney's Zootopia, of course. That one got some measure of play in furry writing before then, but I anticipate that either it will start to see a rise, or it will drop precipitously, as Zootopia is such a big and widely popular film that to use it would feel a little like cheating. The thing I liked about Zootopia's species tensions was that it was a tension based on type of animal in a couple of broad categories rather than species on species. We often write species as substitute for ethnicity. It just seems like a handy correlation. Some authors try to avoid this. I know that Kyle Gold has said he tries not to do it directly in his work, for example. As its own unique type of prejudice, though, you can get some mileage out of speciesism. In Kyle's Shadow of the Father, for example, there is an oppressed class. The mice in the city of Dewan are laborers, second-class citizens to the fox nobility. They live in slums and are generally not taken very good care of. What Kyle does in this book that I think stands out is that this city is on the outskirts of the nation, in the mountains, while the capital city and parts of the country that lie along trade routes are fairly cosmopolitan and accepting, the old class lines run deep out in the provinces, and that mirrors reality very closely. One gets the sense that Dewan was a tiny little dystopia in the making, or on the verge of becoming one, prior to the old lord dying. Yelan, being a young lord, would cause things to swing either way. Don't feel as if you have to stick to species lines, though. That way, madness can lie. Madness or Redwall. If the world is closer to ours, you could simply follow economic trends similar to the ones in our own world and extrapolate on them. You could use geography as a factor. Ryan Campbell's Koa of the Drowned Kingdom certainly has class divisions that are species-based, but that's because of the bat's ability of flight and magic rather than speciesism for its own sake. So we've talked about the setting a little bit. Let's talk about your characters and what they're after. Contrary to popular belief, a dystopian work does not necessarily need to involve attempting to change the world or overthrow the corporations or the government. When your life is in the gutter, any act of rebellion can be significant, even if it's only stealing food you need to survive or stealing data to sell and avoiding corporate security or the corrupt police. Who do you trust? Trust is more valuable a commodity than nearly anything else when anyone can be your enemy or can report you in order to advance their own situation. Something that has recently been on my mind as I've researched and written the second horror episode is the idea of character agency. Reachen mentioned this to me in an email, and I think it's very important to talk about. I was going to discuss it in terms of horror, but I think I will actually cover it in this one and several other contexts as well, because it's such an important feature. It's a big deal. It can make the difference between an okay story and a story where the characters actually feel alive. What do I mean by character agency? Now, lots of authors will tell you that their characters decide where the story is going, and they'll rebel if you attempt to force them to do something that 
doesn't work. That could be taken as one meaning of character agency, but it's not what I'm talking about. For my own part, I don't get into arguments with my characters very often, so that's not necessarily a concept that I grasp. What I'm talking about is the character's decisions driving the story, rather than the story driving the character's decisions. Specifically, that the characters have choices and make choices, and those choices tangibly alter the outcome of the story. If things continually happen to a character, rather than because of a character, then that character may be lacking in agency. If they have no agency, and it isn't being taken from them as part of some story element, and you need to be very careful with that, then your story will fall flat on its face. This is where some plot-driven story authors go wrong, in my view. Their plot acts on the characters in such a way that the characters have no choice in how to respond. When you write a story that way, they come across as paper cutouts. I'm going to give you two scenarios. Here is the first one. A young vixen wakes up in the middle of the night to the sound of her front door being broken down and soldiers yelling. She is paralyzed with fear. The armored soldiers break into her bedroom and seize her, dragging her out to a transport. She does not attempt to run or to free herself. En route to the detention facility, a series of explosions rock the transport, knocking it onto its side, and our vixen finds herself facing a group of rebels as the doors are pulled open. They take her to safety. Now, imagine this scenario. Our vixen wakes up to the sound of doors being knocked down and soldiers shouting. She locks her bedroom door and throws her dresser in front of it before climbing out the window and trying to reach the shadows of the nearby forest. She feels herself grabbed from behind by a soldier and hurled into a transport. Her arms are shackled behind her. En route to the detention facility, explosions rock the transport, sending her flying. She moves quickly, hopping over her arms to get her handcuffs in front of her, and she kicks repeatedly at the transport door, leaping out and knocking aside two rebels as she runs for the woods and safety, before she is caught by a rebel soldier who rounds a corner. Those two scenarios were essentially the same story, but the first protagonist was being dragged along by the plot, making no decisions of her own. The second, while seeming to be just a different personality type, someone who embraces their fear rather than, than cower in it. But think about what each one does. One does not make the decision to go along with her captors, not consciously, she's just taken along. The second, though deciding to fight, has made it a conscious decision. Her decisions affect the story, and she feels more like an active part of the world. In a dystopia, it is critical that your characters have agency. They need to be able to affect things. Not just rebelling against the dystopian system, which may be impossible, but other things. They could be presented with some choice, neither option of which provides a positive outcome. Their choice here will determine how the story plays out. Will they steal the food, or give what rations they do have to their child or sibling and go hungry looking for work or more food the following day? Or will they opt to go the route of the thief? Some people may be inclined to stand on principle and not be a thief. Others might compromise everything just to make sure they survive. Either choice can lead to a story and a character must reasonably be able to choose either option. 
when we provide our characters with choices that aren't really choices, we wreck the meaning of those decisions. As Alan Moore said regarding a film adaptation of V for Vendetta, spoiler alert, the movie, which he did not like, is a choice between totalitarianism and democracy, which is no choice at all. It is an illusion of choice. If you have the freedom to choose, you are probably going to choose democracy. Whereas the graphic novel offers people the choice between totalitarianism and anarchy, which is a much more difficult choice. That is a choice that matters. So if we don't go by species lines for oppression and went with other examples from the real world that fit into a dystopia, how can we apply those to make the furry element of the story more necessary and relevant? The real trouble I have in discussing this kind of thing is that it's prone to the same sorts of examples rather than an overriding philosophy. The biggest philosophy for writing a furry character into a story is that you want to do it. That is all. If you want the story to then matter that they are animals, then you have to apply animal traits to them. And that's where a lot of people fall down. I think it owes in part to the fact that there are so many animal species that can get used in any given work of anthrofiction, and each animal is a little different. So I suppose an overriding concern is to make sure that the animals are different from each other. When there's a joke in the furry fandom about wolves and foxes being starter species. I have a wolf character myself. He's my first and my main persona. I get a chuckle out of that. But it's also not that far off. There's so much furry fiction out there about foxes and wolves that we've sort of created our own canonical definition of what those types of characters become. Some of that's informed by classic fables and myths depicting them. Uh, foxes are sly, they're sneaky, sometimes they're lazy. Some of it's informed further by fandom stereotypes. Foxes are sluts, wolves are dom. Even Zootopia, which is as furry a movie as it gets in the mainstream, plays with traditional animal stereotypes. The wolves are pack animals, and they get into a howl involuntarily. Nick Wilde is a sly fox. Disney's good enough to subvert these archetypes, but we often fall into the trap in our fandom writing. When you're writing a dystopian furry world, one thing to consider is that if the division isn't on the species lines, and it isn't on predator-prey lines, then a lot of people are going to be in the same miserable situation, and how they cope might be different based on species. In times of starvation, species that can live better on plant material will likely fare better. Predator-obligate carnivores like cats might have serious trouble because meat tends to become scarcer faster. It is a dish that is reserved for the elite. Your felines might barely be holding on, fed on some sort of protein substitute that just barely sustains them. Scent is important to canid species. If they live long enough in, a, in an undercity that smells horrendous, they could go nose-blind. That's a serious loss of sense to them. That's like a, a normal-sighted person going blind and having to cope. They're going to have to deal with that or they're not going to be able to do things the way they did before. Otters are swimmers. If the water is polluted, or they're denied access to water, how will that affect them? Many bats echolocate. 
But someone in the FWG Slack chat mentioned that the power of flight upends the balance of power in a story quite often. Does the dystopian government maintain control of a population of, of echolocating flying bats with devices that foul up their echolocation and laws against flight? Think about the animal you're using and how best to apply its unique traits to the situation. A personal example is that my protagonist in my story, Hollow, that is appearing in the upcoming sci-fi horror anthology, Bleak Horizons, is a snow leopard on a Martian terraforming base. He's often called upon to be out in the landscape working on equipment. When he's forced into an enviro suit, his tail is smashed up against him. The suits were designed to be universal, but a long and luxurious tail like his is an outlier for most of the species who come on these missions, so he's never comfortable in the claustrophobic confines of that suit. It, it adds a sense of claustrophobia and a unique uh, way of using his species. There are countless ways to twist your dystopia to make it unique to your furry species. Those are just some ideas. I want to talk about one more thing in regards to writing a realistic dystopia. Start from a premise that could actually be true. Orwell had the surveillance state. Bradbury, in Fahrenheit 451, although I find the idea that books will be destroyed sort of not feasible now, he had the declining interest in literature and writing and books due to the advent of passive entertainment like television. Please do not write something ludicrous like The Purge. Yes, The Purge is a franchise of dystopian films, but the premise is so ridiculously awful and so narrowly focused, there is no possible way it creates a believable world. If you're not familiar, the general idea is that in the near future, the U.S. government has made all crime legal one night a year, Purge Night, and people commit acts of violence and murder and vandalism without consequence on that night. The result is that all crime has been reduced to nearly nothing. The problem here is that most crimes are not violent crimes. The movie expects us to believe that one night of, of, of legal murder would do away with greed and the acquisition of wealth by illegal means such as embezzlement, and a basic 101 class in human psychology tells us that is not true. So be like Bradbury or Huxley, or Orwell. Don't be like the Purge. That's about it for this episode. I hope it was helpful. Today's book recommendation isn't really strictly a true dystopia, and I've already mentioned it, but some of the elements present are ones I discussed, and that book is Shadow of the Father by Kyle Gold, published by Sofa Wolf Press. It is a later book in his Agaia series, which began with Vol, but it stands very well on its own. You don't have to have read the others to understand what's happening. I'm recommending this in this case because of how he writes the class divide between fox and mouse. It's also differently paced than many of his other books, which happen over longer spans of time. This book takes place over the span of a few days at most, which leads to a sense of extreme urgency as each new thing goes wrong. Another reason I'll recommend this book in particular is that it's fairly realistic in the way it presents entrenched politics. Yulan isn't happy in his situation. His bumbling attempts to escape his obligations only make things worse. 
when he looks at his new domain, he sees things that are wrong, but there's no convenient way to hand wave it into a better situation. There are alliances and laws and court politics at work that can't simply be ignored. I think all too often in any sort of fiction, but especially in dystopia, the focus becomes the hero taking a stand, doing what's right, winning the battle. Once the battle is won, everything collapses neatly. Good triumphs, righteousness always prevails. There aren't any ordinary citizens left behind who now have lost everything thanks to the fall of the dystopian government that they relied upon. Kyle doesn't do that here. We're certainly given hopeful glimpses of what kind of ruler Yelan will become, and over the course of events, he is forced to grow up into his responsibility and let go of some of the resentment he feels towards his father. I'm also going to recommend a second book. This one is decidedly non-furry and is going to be a little tough to find because it is not in print, although I did pick up some copies recently on Amazon relatively inexpensively through third-party sellers. The book is 1985, What Happens After Big Brother Dies by Hungarian author Georgi Dalos. It is a direct sequel to 1984. It details the death of Big Brother, the Oceanian defeat at the hands of Eurasia, and the changes and upheaval caused by these events. It is told through three memoirs of characters from the first book, Winston Smith, who was the protagonist of 1984, Julia, his fellow rebel and love interest, and O'Brien, the thought police officer, who lured Winston into rebellion. In addition, there are newspaper articles and official reports all throughout the book that provide a historical perspective on various events, and the whole book is filled with footnotes by the historian compiling it, who slowly grows more and more frustrated with the limitations being placed on him by his superiors, and so begins making snide commentary. The dystopia in 1984 was never going to fall under the circumstances in that book. The follow-up shows us what real consequences there can be when circumstances change and a fall does take place. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, I think, with regard to dystopia, there is a dystopian anthology in the works from Fur Planet, edited by Night Eyes Dayspring and Slipwolf. If anything... I've talked about here today inspires you, then I definitely recommend you submit to it. I will provide a link in the submission uh, call in the show notes, but the basics are that they are looking for stories between four and 12,000 words, furry, uh, a rating of G to R based on the MPAA rating system, and the deadline for submissions is May 1st, 2017. So give that a look. Also, RAR, the Regional Anthropomorphic Writers Retreat, is open for applications through January 20th for its 2017 workshop. If you'd like to hone your writing craft in a residential workshop by and for writers of anthropomorphic fiction, then you are very much encouraged to apply. There is no fee to submit an application. You only have to pay if you're offered a slot in the workshop and accept it. So there's really no reason not to apply if you're interested. I'll again provide a link in the show notes to the website, which is rar, R-A-W-R, dot community. The next workshop will be held in South Lake Tahoe, California, May 26th through June 1st, 2017, right before BLFC in Reno, Nevada, should you wish to end the workshop week with a furry con. All right, that's it for now. I'll try to keep a little more regular schedule in the future so you don't have to wonder what happened to that nerd's podcast. In the meantime, you can reach me on Twitter at Claws Podcast, 
or via email and podcast at chriswilliamsauthor.com. Until next time, and I mean this sincerely because we are going to need all of the entertainment and commentary we can get, do not let anything stop you from writing. <laughs>